1: Checking battery statuses right on your phone while you're out on the water is a huge game changer. To learn more about why Abyss batteries are used by the pros and factory installed by Premier Boat Builders, visit abyssbattery.com.
0: Whether you're just looking to stay warm during a hunt or need maximum concealment, the clothing you wear can make or break a hunt. At MidwayUSA.com, we understand hunting clothing has come a long way with more meticulously crafted camo patterns, advanced scent control technologies and weatherproof options to withstand the elements. Hunters have to wait until their favorite season, but shouldn't wait on gear, which is why Midway USA offers super-fast shipping. When you're ready for your next system, log on to midwayusa.com.
1: Hunt of a Lifetime, changing lives one adventure at a time, empowering kids with courage. Join us in creating memories for kids facing life-threatening illnesses. We are here to make dreams come true, From magical outdoor escapades to heartwarming experiences, every moment is cherished. With every step of our young heroes, find a network of support, love, families, volunteers, and friends unite to uplift spirits and spread smiles. Amidst breathtaking landscapes, kids find strength they never knew they had. Together, we conquer challenges and celebrate victories. Be a part of the movement that transforms lives. Your contribution can bring courage and hope where it's needed most. Go to huntovalifetime.org to get involved. Let's create a world of cherished moments and unstoppable bravery. Brought to you in part by Maine Operation Game Thief, New Hampshire Wildlife Heritage Foundation, International Wildlife Crime Stoppers, and the North American Game Warden Museum is warden's watch warden's watch episode 117 undercover main game warden bill livesley i sit down with bill and we talk about his life experiences as a young man how he pulled himself up from horrible situations his experience with law enforcement as a young child when his father was killed in a confrontation with law enforcement and how he became a main game warden and then excelled at undercover work. Very great sit-down podcast because Bill puts this all down on paper for you to read in his book, Let's Go for a Ride. And what an epic story of a main game warden it is. So I would encourage you to grab Bill's book and sit down because you can't put it down once you start reading it. The true story of Bill's life and career. Enjoy this podcast. As always, I did. And don't forget to give us a rating And if you're into, like, watching these interviews, most of these interviews are videotaped and are on Patreon. So for $5 a month, you can actually go to Patreon and watch a lot of these videos. We have a lot of extras on Patreon, too, with different pictures and things we try to put on there. So uh, it's certainly a way to support the podcast and get a little extra out of it. So... Welcome to this episode of Warden's Watch where we're sitting down with Bill Livesey, former main game warden, undercover, and author now of Let's Go for a Ride. Yes, sir. I just, <laughs> you know, uh, and we just started this whole conversation because I love that title, and, and titles have power, as far as I'm concerned. And oh yeah, yeah. And when I, when you said that, I'm like, yeah, that's how probably everything starts.
2: <laughs> that's you know? how. That's how almost. Well, that's how every undercover case uh, shifts into that mode when the bad guy says, "Let's go for a ride," that's, because that vehicle is their catalyst.
1: To yeah. wherever they're going and doing it, right. So unless they're doing it right out the back door, <laughs> and that that happens too, yeah. <laughs> and then it's let's go for a walk. <laughs> That'll be the sequel, right?
2: Right. <laughs> but it's always words to that effect, whether you're yeah. riding or it's it's go time. It's is go time. is another way to say it? Yeah, for sure.
3: Yeah.
1: So you know you, you got to quite. The background story bill, you yeah. know growing up starting off an experience of a, as a child that's probably pretty sucky,
2: you know yeah, yeah, there was some yeah, there were some those uh very dysfunctional events, unfortunately, yes, mm. but I think it got built for you to do this job um I'm pretty convinced now, looking back on it it uh i didn't know I was being given some very important gift sets. Uh, skill sets Mm -hmm. until looking back on how things that's how life is anyway you look back and you're like wow that really that really is the cause of what formed this Mm -hmm. you know and and i can look back and see all that now yeah do you mind sharing a little bit of that sure um i'm open about it all the time people ask me some details and that's why some people actually uh encouraged me to write a book and express some of those things because it was uh my dad was a a really good guy at one point in his life hard work and very driven Mm kind of like uh game wardens driven to catch poachers uh my dad was driven to make money that's that's kind of that unfortunate trap he fell into and then when he found out how to make easy money so he was this workaholic guy and then he got into buying like a bar and a hotel and duplexes trying to build wealth and mm-hmm. uh in a very limited short period of time he became a a meth dealer and just going fast forward and and I'm talking a very short period of time of you know that love of money trap that some people fall into he just basically um well he had my uncle murdered contract murdered and Again, became a meth dealer, and then his life started to crumble. And then it ultimately ultimately ended in a police confrontation. Mm. And, uh, of course, my parents were divorced at that point, but everything happened in a very short window of years, Mm. Uh, like three years he went from, the business man. Yeah, well, a- good guy, hard worker, owned business, owned like those big landscaping businesses that just mm-hmm. boomed. Had a bunch of guys working for him, and, and then he got into the owning his own you know, hotel and bar and deli and big apartments. Uh, not huge, not like a Donald Trump situation. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, but enough
1: to be pretty comfortable.
2: Well, yeah. I mean, we were, uh, I would call it at one little section, maybe that's a you would call it high middle class, mm-hmm. so comfortable, but then quickly uh, spiraled spiraled down fast. Mm-hmm. Probably as soon as my parents got divorced, as soon as, you know, my dad kind of became a womanizer and, and, and all those things started to unravel on him, you know, my mom, enough's enough kind of thing. And right. Do you know what precipitated
1: him to have his, I'm assuming it's his brother, your uncle? Killed? Yeah, they owned an apartment building
2: together and... It was probably an insurance job. I think the the benefit was a couple hundred grand for my dad because they owned this uh, apartment building jointly. Yeah. And I think my uncle, and, and I don't want to throw my uncle under the bus because I was a kid at the time. Right. And, yeah. But I think he was in the recording conversations and there was that element of mm-hmm. my dad wanting him out of the picture, which was his own brother. Yeah. You know, so... You could see where that would that's cause. My grand, My grandfather knew my dad had something to do with the murder, even though my dad paid a fella to, to do it. There's, and there's a lot of ironies. I, I document that in the first chapter because you don't realize your father forms you, mm-hmm. and right. you don't realize the influence and why that's in the first chapter of the book is because, and you know, like my co-writer said, you know, even my dad said it to me when I went along with him on a meth deal, and you know, when I was involved in drugs and doing some very stupid things as a juvenile delinquent, that's the direction I was headed. hmm And I talk about some of the occasions where my dad, that's how far he went downhill. And who's going to take their son on a meth deal, you know? Yeah. And uh, I was, like, 14 years old at the time. And, uh just crazy things like that and you know i was i was in the other extreme i couldn't wait to tell my buddies how cool it was uh, you know how cool my dad was Mm -hmm. that took me on a drug deal you know that was significant you know yeah you know a pound of crystal meth Mm -hmm. uh uh, you know purple crystal meth that was a you know a drug in the day in the 70s and uh you know it still is but it was like that biker crowd uh customer drug you know in the Mm -hmm. day and probably truckers as well but Anyway, but I was uh, my mindset was was uh, thought that was the coolest thing, you know, mm-hmm. smoking a joint with my dad. A year before that, he caught me smoking marijuana and he backhanded me and made me call my mom. You know that this is how far my dad had deteriorated, deteriorated. Yeah, the and transition. In that time frame, wow, right, so those kinds of things influence you more than you think they do. Mm-hmm. you know now I look back in that and I you know I know what a father is, and I know how important a father's role is, and right you know it's the reason there's such a breakdown in our culture today of fatherlessness mm-hmm. and uh something I've tried to pay back to, but yeah, and the co author i I shared with that just minutes before we went on how um He's my co-writer came up with the Let's Go for a Ride title for the book because my dad even said it to me. Right. You know, and it was like, do you realize every story you wrote down and showed me somewhere along the road, uh, uh, the bad guy, including your father, says, let's go for a ride? And, you, and I said, yeah, you're absolutely right. <laughs> yeah. You know, that's, that's how that, title. that happened. But yeah. that had a real profound influence on me. So here I went from a young kid, loved to hunt and fish. I had some uncles and a grandfather that I loved. it. I remember my dad actually pointing out to me, Billy, you better start thinking about something else. You can't make money, you know, doing something with wildlife and i mm. was the marty stoffer i actually was mutual of omaha back then flipper yeah. gentle band <laughs> i mean i was sold on being a game ward yeah. you know from flipper all those shows yeah and uh, that's how i had it you know you are as a kid but then right. when i took that turn and went into the whole drug scene world and all that um and was basically following my dad's footsteps mm-hmm. unknowingly you know and, uh, you know, those those influences were huge. Mm. Yeah. You know? And when's the shift occur to that, well, to, hey, that I want to be a game warden? So before I turned into a juvenile delinquent, I actually wanted to be a game warden from what I just told you with all yeah. that. But then uh, still wanting that, I still trapped, even when I was a... A druggie and whatever. I still hunted and fished mm-hmm. and trapped and even though I was like dabbling in both worlds, that you that they don't really go together. Right. And I was also a wrestler and a football player. So okay. even though I was really rough around the edges, I had coaches kind of pull me in. They knew I didn't have a dad around, especially when my dad died in that police confrontation. I had some uh guys that they saw the need. I didn't know I had a need, but they right. saw the need, trying to pull me in. And I was actually waking up, I, when I, right after my dad's death, I got using drugs pretty hard, like meth mm. and stuff like that. It used to be just a weekend thing with like the harder drugs. But then I got, you know, doing all the stupid stuff that kids do. I'm young now. I'm 15 years old. Mm. I'm doing hard drugs now, you know, maybe not LLSD and different things. I, I never wanted to lose control. I always wanted control, even if I'd get really wasted on quaaludes or something like that. Yeah, And... um but I can re- I can remember really being I was a happy go lucky kid. Mm-hmm. It was like, like my personality trait even yeah. then. And uh, but I was broken. I was like really inwardly broken. And after my dad's death, I'd like see people laughing. I remember when I went to the papers saying the biggest drug dealer on the East Coast. You know, it was it was you know mm-hmm. exaggerated a little bit. I mean, he wasn't that, but he was bad. Mm-hmm. And uh, and they hadn't solved the murder yet. But then when the murder happened, that was a whole nother wave of uh, when they were able to tie it to my dad as being the actual, you know, contractor murder thing that he hired. Anyway, and that guy got convicted, and that guy was convicted through an undercover guy. There's some huge ironies in this story. You know, who would have thought that I would have become (laughs) an undercover investigator and come to find out how they got the guy that murdered my uncle that my dad paid to murder his brother. They uh, did it through... An undercover guy, um, establishing the, getting the evidence, putting it together. And so there's a lot of ironies in, in what I explain. But anyway, um, back to what changed me from that pivotal situation. Mm. I mean, I remember waking up at night, and I don't know if you want to call them panic attacks or just waking up and breaking out in a sweat. I remember, um, you know, I wasn't a religious kid, didn't know anything about anything. All I knew was I, I knew there was a God and I knew I was a bad kid. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> so, anyway, fundamentals. A, yeah, uh, fundamentals. I had yeah. a friend invite me to fellowship with Christian athletes. And uh, because I was a wrestler and a football player, I, I really understood where I was. You know, when you start thinking about life, now I'm 17. Mm-hmm. So, I, I had, oh, backing up a second, I had quit drugs, everything. You know, I self-medicated with alcohol to deal with anxiety of life or all those things. Um, Because my mom owned a bar, I had way too much access to alcohol. I mean, I was the kind of kid that had the keys. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So, a 15-year-old kid, if I wanted a bottle of Jack Daniels, I got it, you know. And um, I'd tell my mom some fib that I was going up there with my friends to play pool when when everything was closed. And I would do whatever I wanted, you know. and Mm -hmm. Uh, and, and you get a lot of friends when your mom owns a bar, yeah, I bet you do, <laughs> <laughs> so uh I had twenty year old friends. I was fifteen, sixteen years old, and I had older friends because they knew I could have access to to different things and anyway, yeah, so fast forward back to where I was, I went out of order there a little bit, but so I made a commitment to the Lord at seventeen that you know my life 's a mess, I admit it mm-hmm. change, and uh so I totally took a different direction, so now i don 't well I haven't I'd quit drugs when I was 15 just mm-hmm. me saying that's it, that's it begging god to stop me from waking up and breaking out in a sweat I don't know if I was just experiencing anxiety or maybe it was the drugs or whatever it was but I remember saying hey did you blame law enforcement for your dad's death Oh yeah, yeah. oh my word right after the the police confrontation and when my dad he actually committed suicide the they were shooting tear gas in the house and caught it on fire with the devices, you know, they used back then, and uh, this was in 1979, September 17th, when it happened, and and uh, the place caught on fire, and they just had to let it burn. Well, while it was burning, I guess he, you know, shot himself in the head. My sister and I were there watching, and so anyway, we, uh, I did, I was bitter. Mm-hmm. I was actually bitter enough to where, you know, when you're a kid, 15, you're planning in your mind, like, revenge. Mm-hmm. I remember that. I can remember Oh, I'm going to hold those guys responsible who did right. this, you know. And then you had the whole guilt, you know, 15 year old. What could I have done? I was right. there. Could I have got, I was, I was going to meet my, my dad was on the run for a while and he came back in town. My sister and I were invited to his girlfriend's house to where we were going to have supper with him and we get there in the whole places. Place. You know, it's rocking and rolling. Well, it wasn't burning uh-huh. real bad yet, but it started too. We were there and, yeah. uh, you know, and that's when he ended up, you know, committing suicide in the house. But I was bitter. I was bitter towards law enforcement. Mm-hmm. But then, of course, I I'm back and forth here a little bit. But when I was 17 and made that commitment, you could just tell some of those big weights that I had those those big chips on my shoulders about what occurred, you know, two years earlier. They were they were faded, mm-hmm. you know, and I uh, totally different direction. So I didn't use drugs or anything. I still had that crowd that knew me and that were friends right. with me, but they all know, ah, Libsy's. Back then they said straight. <laughs> now yeah. it means something different now. <laughs> um, But, um, yeah, but I was straight then too. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, it's, it's, you, they were right on both accounts. Yeah, right. so, <laughs> so anyway, um, so proceeding on, went back to my passion, mm-hmm. you know, to to, yeah. to be a game warden. Course, I was quite a little poacher then too. I told you I was in that little bit of a drug world, and then yep, you know you have that clique of friends, and then go out and kill something or whatever. And um, so after I became a Christian, I'm like, yeah, all this is wrong, and I'm not participating in that kind of activity, you know. And mm-hmm. of course, I like to say, you know, uh, you know I'm 50, going to be 59. The Lord's still working on me, kind of thing, <laughs> you know. So, well, what that said. Uh, there was a lot of rough edges that had to come off Bill Livesey right. before he would be, uh, game warden someday, you mm-hmm. know, at eight, from 17 on. Uh, there was a lot of rough edges that had to come off. So anyway, uh, I went to Unity College, you know, I was born and raised in Pennsylvania and, um, Had a guy tell me, you know what, there's this college up in, this is before colleges had a lot of conservation law programs. Right, yep. There's this college up there to Unity, you know, that has all these programs about wildlife and different things. And he goes, man, you would fit right into that because he knew my passion. Mm -hmm. There's people like this fella here that like saw my passion and and kind of threw out some direction. You know, looking back, everything was falling into place. So Mm -hmm. I ended up going to Unity College, going to get married soon to my – High school sweetheart. That was the other thing that happened when I was 17. I, you know, I found a nice girl. (laughs) Yeah. yeah.
1: (laughs) And uh, I understand that my friends are shocked at that too.
2: (laughs) So, anyway, uh, started dating her back when I was a junior in high school. And anyway, uh, we were going to get married. And, you know, I went to Unity College and I was riding with John Ford. And uh, these things just happened. And Mm -hmm. here I am, just a college kid riding with John Ford. And, Of course, he wasn't big on following all the policies in place. (laughs) So we're out, you know, He catching night hunters. And once you get addicted to that that adrenaline of uh, here I am in college, I mean, I knew exactly what I needed to do. Mm -hmm. And I still had poacher buddies back home and, hey, you're not going to have any friends and... Why would you want to be a game warden? Nobody's gonna like you, and yep. and uh, I'm like, you know what? You know, I found my passion, mm-hmm. and uh, I talk about that in the book as well. That, and, and then back to what we said earlier, you don't realize the gift and the skill set that inadvertently, because of some of the things I saw and observed. You know, having all these mentors in my mom's hotel bar Mm that would take me hunting or whatever, they were pretty rough around the edges. Some of them were... They taught you all kinds of ways to do it wrong, right? Mm-hmm. And then some of them did it right. I don't yeah. want to take that away from some. There no. were some <laughs> that were doing it right, but there was a lot of them that mm-hmm. were doing it wrong. And and they were good guys to me, and yeah. they taught me things and the wrong things. But they, uh, but they didn't know they were also helping me learn An skills education for the future <laughs> yeah, that you could I'd... apply. Oh yeah, one. Yeah. Uh, I didn't get hired on as a game warden right away. There was a lot of competition. You know, mm-hmm. seventeen hundred. Twenty six hundred applicants. For I remember five were jobs that similar yeah. time frames, and it was it was five tough. jobs, ten jobs. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I when I got refused in Maine the first two times, I was devastated because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. in the polygraph I told them everything, yeah, and I had a lot to tell, and I said every little detail of every deviant act I've ever done, and of course some questions that are on the polygraph are very pointed. <laughs> yes, they are, and there's <laughs> and, a lot of them. Oh yeah, a lot of them. They must have to come back for a separate day on you, huh? uh, Yeah, well, I was, I was uh, five and a half hours on my first yeah. polygraph the main warden service, and uh, I remember getting there early, and I, my appointment was 9.30 at the crime lab in mm-hmm. Augusta, and, and they're like, hey, well, you're here early. We might as well get set up, because they had already backgrounded mm-hmm. me and knew a lot of details already, right. and... Uh, I, I didn't I didn't eat breakfast. They told me not to eat oh. breakfast. And then, of course, I was hooked up so long and yeah. interviewed so there, long. There goes through lunch. We uh, went through lunch, and it's 2.30 in the afternoon before I was oh, cut loose. Man. And I just remember coming out of there feeling less than human. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yes.
1: Uh, probably more so than most of us, because I think yeah. all of us come out of there feeling as than human, but I wasn't starved. <laughs> <laughs> I, I did have the old method where they, they pumped it up so tight and they turned my arm blue. <laughs> oh, boy. Yeah. And uh, he asked me if I was agitated. And I was like, yes, I'm agitated. And He's like, why? My my arm's blue and I can't feel it. Yeah. yeah. So, the polygraph very truthful. Was, yeah. And that's all they want to know if you're truthful.
2: So, I right. mean,
1: as long as you were saying the stuff, that's well, the, the a- bottom actually, line. Well, actually,
2: that wasn't quite... Uh, no, because I was truthful and they, so I asked them, you know, I didn't get invited to the final interview that, uh, that, that was the second time I tested and I'm like, okay. I got a letter saying, you know, you were, uh, congratulations for passing the quality, uh, the polygraph examination, but we, uh, we, uh, are not, you are not being chosen to go to the final interview. And I was like devastated, right? Yeah, you get that letter and you're like, you gotta be kidding me. I'm like, well... I can't do anything about my past. It's there, no matter what. Mm -hmm. So I remember communicating with Augusta and saying, hey, just curious. I called down to Augusta, and I was like, uh, I was working at the state prison at the time for the state of Maine. Mm -hmm. I was Mm -hmm. um, hoping to... uh, not be a corrections officer nothing against corrections but mm-hmm. uh, i was an outside person <laughs> yeah, not an inside person yeah, yeah. That's, uh... and uh ended up staying there three and a half years because i didn't get hired that time but i asked him is it worth me even applying again because right. i can't change my past right um who i am i made some bad decisions a lot of them as a kid mm-hmm. i mean i was really young though and mm-hmm. i was that's actually probably what helped um, most kids don't even try drugs till they're right. You know, yeah. let alone being involved. I mean, you quit at fifteen. Most <laughs> right. kids don't start till they're sixteen. I right. would think. Oh, uh, that's the yeah. yeah. And, uh, so the foolish decisions I made. Fortunately, I made them as a real young person. I think that helped. But then they saw the pattern mm-hmm. moving forward. Right, and uh, they told me, "No, you sh- you should apply again." I said, well, oh, yeah. I appreciate that. And so sure enough, you know, when Maine did it like every other year back mm-hmm. then, because the process took a year. Yeah. Yeah, so, I remember. <laughs> and, yeah. So in 1990, I actually uh, uh, applied in New Hampshire. Yeah. And I can remember um, I scored in the top. I was in the top two guys. Went to that final interview for New Hampshire. Now, this is mm-hmm. before the polygraph, but they ask you some questions. It was right. the major, and I think it was the major and the colonel. Mm-hmm. And I could see the expressions on their face when I told them. They asked me right up, did you ever do this or ever do that? You know, Some of the same similar questions they're going to ask you in a polygraph, but right. specifically to narcotics or something mm-hmm. like that. And I said, unfortunately, sir, yes. And I watched their faces, mm-hmm. and they had already said, oh, mm-hmm. and uh, – so when I when I didn't make it in Maine, I went down to New Hampshire and right. and I was axed. I was there. I had the opportunity to to be right at the top, and I could see the excitement on their faces. They were mm-hmm. encouraged that this right. looks like a pretty good candidate. And then uh, when I was honest with them about yeah. you know my past, uh, I saw their. I it was all on their faces that mm-hmm. I was I was done. Right. Uh, but then I met that same major, Ma, I think it was Mott. Yeah, Henry Mott. Yeah, yeah. I, I met him later, and he's like, "I knew we should have taken a chance on you." You know, so he, he uh, made me feel a lot better yeah. because this was years later. I, I I joined in on a it was some kind of decoy situation where uh, we were showing stuff it was yeah. a uh, interagency type of thing and he yeah. was he was like i knew it we we should have we should have taken a chance with you yeah. <laughs> so that that made me feel a lot better <laughs> yeah, um, that, that's good no i would agree so yeah
1: but you y- eventually get hired with Maine.
2: yeah so they uh they took a chance on yeah. me, and uh the third time and uh i got um hired on and uh i i made a promise at the final interview that uh that I was going to uh try to be the best game warden I can be for the state of Maine and uh, I was passionate about it mm-hmm. and you know it was it was that last final interview you're there's still like 25 guys in the running for right. the 10 positions so it's not mm-hmm. like you're there right now you got to be and the choice you have to sell yourself and mm-hmm. uh and they they came right out and said we know you we know Well, you've had a history this is your third time yeah they know you're not going to go away and good for you not to go away (laughs) yeah so i was i was passionate about i remember thinking to my wife discussing it with her like hey this might as much as i felt like it was my calling Mm -hmm. to be a game warden and as passionate as i was to pursue it this this might never happen that's i just got to suck it up and deal with it so when i got the opportunity i wasn't going to mess around i was going to hey I'm going to try to be the best game warden I can be in the state of Maine. And uh, they took a chance, and Mm -hmm. right out of the gate, I was pounding pretty hard. Yeah, (laughs) I bet. They put me in a mill town, the first area, and, of course, my background helped me with you know, all the druggies, I felt bad for them. They didn't have a chance. Right. <laughs> you know, I, could, I could smell everything a mile away, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, made some hard feelings there with uh, checking somebody deer hunting, and they just got done smoking a joint, man. They were they were bumming that the, yeah. the new young game warden knew all that, knew stuff. All that stuff. And uh, so, yeah, very had some very productive years as a uniform guy. and mm. You know, caused a little hard feelings. There were some issues there. You know, OUI enforcement was new for game wardens. Right. Um, all the people I caught night hunting as a uniform guy and all those, like, what you would consider, you know, regular poaching catches. Mm-hmm. They, as, as upsetting as they would be for getting caught, they they still knew that's what a game warden did. But when we were asked to do OUI enforcement, man, did that cause some hard feelings. Yeah. You know, it was new. Game wardens mm-hmm. didn't go out in a boat and catch drunks in a boat. And, right. And snowmobilers, we always went snowmobiling with a 30-pack. And now this young game wardens, yeah. I, My, I grew up in a bar. I could pick drunks out all day long. Oh, I know? bet you could. And they did hate that. Yeah. And, and it was a mill town, and people played hard. And, mm-hmm. and, uh you know, mill towns are uh shift work and that kind of thing. And... Guys had the toys to go play hard. Got mm-hmm. paid well. And, you know, it was uh, a link, Yeah, it was and, a Lincoln District. Yeah, it was a tough job. Yeah. They d- they had. They got paid well for them, and then they play hard. And mm-hmm. now this young game warden comes along. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like young game wardens do, and uh, and uh, I love the job. That was yeah, the problem. Uh, you know, I love my wife, but I I was it was hard to get me home to because uh, you know you get addicted to the chase. And, yes. And, course, and you get addicted to catching night hunters and it, it really it, uh, it's the same dopamine that no. the the bad guys have for going out and killing the deer or 100% 100% <laughs> you know? yeah so um yeah. so that's what that's what happened. I was very very passionate
1: yeah so, so and, and how was how did your wife adjust to the life of the game
2: world <laughs> um she uh she loved it but it was hard yeah it was uh we had four kids and um as as the years went we had one born while i was in the police academy so that Mm -hmm. would have been my second one and then we had two more children after that so she had her hands full Mm -hmm. so when i did have a break from work if it wasn't the fall when i was right out straight like working like a lunatic you know Mm -hmm. of course i got hired back in the day when you worked 14 hours a day or you didn't work an hour well, it even was worse. But it, we were we were hired. In fact, I remember our, my fr- the colonel Colonel Cummings was his name, a very old school colonel. Mm-hmm. But even he said, "You work over eight hours, you're out." Because it was that it was that day and age when there were lawsuits. So Garcia was the, coming yeah, in. Yeah, the state of Maine they weren't paying anything over eight, mm-hmm. and if you worked over eight and got caught, you were out. Mm-hmm. That's how strict because of all the different things that were going on. And I was like, and old-timers hated it because they didn't want to look like a, a, a slacker. Right. I was taught by the old-timers, mm-hmm. uh, John Fords and different guys. Um, yep. I rode with Tim Peabody and mm-hmm. uh, and uh, Roland Tilton, different game wardens I rode with. They were old-school mindset. You work until the job's done, and in the fall, you know how that is. Oh, yeah. And. uh so that very first year, we were just felt like we were doing everything wrong because we were always out working. And I partnered up with Dave Georgia, another game warden, and we just we just put the hammer down because we were both, we feed off each other mm-hmm. as far as we both love to catch night hunters. And, and we had a, a lot of success because of that. But we were working like fools, you know. Mm-hmm. That's hard on family too. Yes, it is. Yeah, for so sure. Going right around the clock and for then sure. being a zombie, you know. Yeah. Did it get better when you went undercover? Um, that was probably worse. worse. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was a part-time undercover guy for a while. Mm-hmm. But then when I was promoted to a game warden investigator and dove into the whole undercover world, well, I was recruited. Mm-hmm. Uh, Terry Hunter was an investigator, and he basically came up to me and said, We think you have a gift set that would be helpful to us. Right. Would you be willing to work in this capacity? And I go into that into the book too a little bit because uh, not everybody can do that kind of work. No. I don't think I'm anybody special, but for whatever reason, that kind of came easy to me. Mm -hmm. I think being likable is a big part of it too. Yeah, a lot of people don't understand undercover work isn't that um, technical. Mm -hmm. It's being liked and being trusted. Mm -hmm. It's only two things. Yeah. And I said. And you got to be liked before you're trusted. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and it's it's not always if it's a buy and selling thing if I'm mm-hmm. if I'm buying deer off a bad guy or whatever, that mm-hmm. kind of commercial thing, it's not Liking you isn't as important. Right, it can work against you. This guy's been killing whatever and selling it to everybody else. If he mm. likes you too much, he won't sell it to you. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> so that that's worked against me in a few cases over the years. Yeah, and, you know, I did that twenty years. But when I was a full, t- when I got promoted in two thousand seven to be a full time investigator, um, I could really focus. And I, and and the reason I jumped on it. I had some struggles doing it. I'm like, mm-hmm. you know, that's the dark side. I came out of. Do I want to befriend people of that crowd? Mm-hmm. Pretend to be like I was, just right. to catch them. There's a yeah. lot of there's a lot of uh, psychology in in doing undercover work. Oh yeah, I can. I struggled. That. I I struggled more than some people. That some people thought it was really easy to me, and it. It was easy as far as being able to make the contact and, and get in with that group of bad guys that, you know, it's was a group of felons that needed to be caught and they were just bad, bad poachers. But they were also doing everything else. A lot of the cases I worked, they'd be drug dealing, doing a little bit of a home invasion and take somebody's drugs so they could sell them and, and, and marijuana ripper offers and just thieves Mm-hmm. The, the gamut just goes, the range is just bizarre mm-hmm. um, because most poachers just don't poach. <laughs> they're, mm-hmm. they're usually doing everything. right. So, yeah, that, uh, but that's hard on your psyche. Mm-hmm. So you think, ah, you're working really bad people, but I don't care if you're undercover working bikers, mm-hmm. you're undercover working the mob. If you hear the testimonies of some of them undercover guys, they struggle. That Stockholm syndrome is real. Mm-hmm. So you're basically befriending people. And then you feel like a Judas when it's all over because the betrayal is you're not Bill the friend. You're Bill the undercover game warden. Yeah. And you just observed all those crimes they committed. And not only did you observe them, you documented and now they're going to be held accountable. Mm. So the struggle is they pull you into their home. There's a huge trust, like Mm -hmm. you mentioned. Yep. Sit around the dinner table. The trust is established. They trust you with their kids. Mm. You know, there's a huge trust, and now there's this huge betrayal. Right. I struggled with that that whole 20 years. Mm -hmm. So people would ask me, Oh, you must have loved catching those guys. Well, I did. I loved that. I loved that a guy that needed to be caught Mm. finally got caught because some of the reasons we weren't guys was. They knew all the our tricks. They were guys that right. were very careful and uniform situations weren't able to apprehend them. Right. So yeah. if they were bad enough and we made this big decision to work a particular group and then we committed to working them, we got them and we got them really good. Because mm-hmm. undercover cases, you're not only there when they're killing everything and doing everything – but you hear all the conversation, all the planning, all the past things, all the future things. Right. You're part of the group. Mm-hmm. So the evidence mountain is huge. Right. And uh, so as far as liking undercover work, when people would ask me, mm-hmm. does it un- is it reasonable or understandable that I, I felt like I, w- I could do it well? I was very successful at it, but I didn't necessarily like it. Gotcha. Even when I was going into a new case, my mindset was like every time I started a new case, and I try to run with three every fall because that's about all you can psychologically handle. Mm. You know, especially if I'm sleeping with a group of people a week at a time. Yeah. And there's only, you know, the main killing time of the year is Mm -hmm. August, maybe to December. You know, you got a window. And uh, if you're making multiple contacts in a fall, right. you can only have so many cases. Absolutely. It's very draining. And you ne- and you do need a little decompressed time between a case um, just so your wife still loves you. <laughs> <laughs> and and uh, your kids recognize who you are. And, mm-hmm. and uh, those kinds of things are very stressful, too. Mm-hmm. You know, not being able to go to a kid's ball game if it was out of my area just on the idea that there might be a connection – also watching the ball game. Yeah. Or me having to watch a ball game of my kid from a distance. It was, those kinds of sacrifices were brutal on the family. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. Yeah, hmm Yeah. I can see where that would be. Yeah, but I, I, uh, I did enjoy catching a really bad guy. Mm-hmm. But I didn't necessarily like, even though that's the way it's done, mm-hmm. that betrayal part. Yeah. And befriending and betrayal, because that's what it comes down to. But, it was the tool. It's a great tool to catch really bad people. Mm-hmm. You know yeah, when it works. Yeah. Where uniforms can't do that. Well, uh, uniforms do a lot of great work. Right. But um, I shouldn't say they can't do it. It's usually on luck if they do right. it. Right. So or it's connecting dots. It's really really good investigative work. If you're a uniform or even overt investigations, it's time consuming collecting the dots. Look how easy it is when you're sitting in the vehicle when three guys night hunt a moose. Mm-hmm. There is no collecting evidence and dots. You're right there when it happened. Right, you got it. <laughs> and not only for that moose, the next two that they kill, and then that until you shut the case down. Right. And, uh, so it's not only the poor uniform guy because I was one. I get it. It's mm-hmm. all this work connecting dots to make a case. Uh, unless, you know, it's a night hunter that happens right in front of you, and then you get them that one time. Right. But you don't get them next week and the week after. You know? 100%, yeah. <laughs> you know how that is. So so undercover cases uh, are, were a huge tool for mm. Maine Warden Service and, you know, and for other states. Uh, for sure. To get really bad guys, yeah. Yeah, 100%. Um,
3: after years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by overpriced wireless providers, If we've learned anything, it's that there's always a catch. So when I heard that Mint Mobile wireless plans are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan, I thought, what's the catch? But after talking to them, it all made sense. There isn't one. Mint Mobile's secret sauce is that they sell wireless service online. They cut out the cost of retail stores and pass those sweet savings directly to you. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan, for just fifteen bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash waypoint. That's mintmobile.com slash waypoint. Cut your wireless bill to fifteen bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash waypoint. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details.
0: Hunting boots are a critical component of any successful hunt. Whether walking a short distance to your blind or trudging miles through rugged terrain, your feet are carrying the load. Without the right boots, you could give up early and lose out on that trophy just over the ridge. At Midway USA, we make selecting boots for your next hunt easier. With just a few clicks of a mouse, you can decide on what's important, like waterproofing, insulation, size, width, and savings. For just about everything for shooting, hunting, and the outdoors, check out midwayusa.com.
1: I was told a story, and I'm not even sure if it's in the book because I hate to say it, I haven't read your book yet. So. <laughs> I, woke up. I hope I didn't blow it
2: to say it No, no, no,
1: no, but We're going to get to the ending eventually, I hope. I mean, uh, oh, man. It, that, that's why I say there's going to be an audio book in the future, Bill, because uh so busy. I listen to books all the time when I'm doing other things, but yeah. read, sitting down and reading a book is uh, a challenge for me. Yeah, that's um, how
2: I read my first few uh, I'm even though I wrote a book, I'm not a big reader, yeah. so I I feel like I'm cheating when I do it audibly. But uh, uh but that's I think you'll, I get you'll, it you'll
1: done. do a great job narrating it as you should. So because that passion carries through. But the time you were uh, the the guy that caught you that was told him
2: he pulled over the truck and said oh. he was the game warden. <laughs> yeah, you, uh, that's a true story. That yeah. was uh, that was Operation Beale's Island and. Uh, He was uh, not the primary target, but he was a a younger guy in his 20s that, you know, had been quite a night hunter. And -hmm. and, uh, we had actually just killed a deer, and uh, we're driving along in the truck. And uh, all of a sudden, you know, he blasts me with a few vulgar words and says, pull the F over, uh, you're under arrest. I'm an F undercover game warden, and I don't know how my face looked, but it must have been. It did catch me off guard, so it was a real. Uh, it was a real response to his right. obnoxious and realistic comment, and uh, I just stopped the truck and looked over at him. He's like. Ah! <laughs> Gotcha. <laughs> and, uh, and that you, was a real response. Oh, yeah. <laughs> he goes,
0: you should have seen your face. Like you know, and he went
2: on and on and on. Of course, you know, I know how the end of the case is going to go. Yeah. <laughs> so, the, you know, the the joke's on him, unfortunately. But, oh, uh, man. I actually heard that fellow turned his life around, which uh, he was pretty hard the other way. So yeah. uh, um, that was encouraging to hear that. That's good. Yeah. So that's somebody that's... Uh, Hopefully, he's not into the poaching, but hopefully, he's not into the drugs and Mm -hmm. the heavy drinking and all the other issues he had. And um, So, yeah, it's nice to see that sometimes they change. I'm convinced it wasn't because of being caught, but it's still nice to see people do change.
1: Right. (laughs) Did did you have a favorite case that you actually kind of enjoyed working?
2: Um, uh, Well, I enjoyed all of them to a degree. Mm Mm-hmm. Like I would uh, – one of the things I would do work in a case is so it wouldn't look fake is I would really try to – and some people I worked were very, very vile, very hard to like. hmm But I would find something. Psychologically, I would try to find something that I liked about them, and I'd really hone in. So it wouldn't be fake. Does that make sense? Well, give me an so, example. Well, Okay, there was a guy that was really, really rough and really, really hard to be around. Just the way he talked, the way he acted, his arrogance. Mm-hmm. But he was a wrestler. Uh he had a connection. So we had that thing we could talk about, mm-hmm. and we had that, uh, and then I think he even coached a little. Okay. And this guy was this guy was hard. Mm-hmm. This guy, this was the guy I, I brought it up in one of the classes I taught today. That I was on a bear. He was a guide and he was on a bear hunt with him. And uh, poor Bubba that was holding the lead of the dog slipped out of his hand after they wanted me to shoot the bear out of the tree. It was a hound hunt. Mm-hmm. And it was one of the guy's prime hounds and uh, plot. And he, uh, the reason you hold the dogs back is so when the bear's dying, he doesn't grab onto the skull of one of them dogs and you kill, kill your dog. best dog. Right. Yeah. So anyway, that, dare, that bear happened to just fall into a big blowdown, kind of a hard place to get to. And that mm-hmm. dog, when he came loose and went, dove right in on top of that bear. Well, the guy, very unstable guy. He was the guy who was just saying that we had that mm-hmm. common thing with the – And so he just out of his mind and, and quick hit a four hundred fifty four mag, and he just quick reaches over and freaking pops that bear a couple times in the head, and he is screaming. Well now poor bubba this 35 year old just loves this mean <laughs> older guy that mm-hmm. he's uh his mentor uh his poaching mentor <laughs> and he is on his hands and knees and bawling and this guy is out of his mind and I literally thought I was going to witness a homicide mm. and like I had only been in on this hu- and hunts dog hunts They call it a race. When it's on, it's on. It's very intense. You know, Mm -hmm. you got dogs barking. You got all kinds of chaos. And uh, so picture this 35, 36-year-old man on his hands and knees just bawling. Poor Bubba. (laughs) The big wad of chew in his mouth. Letting the hoots out of him. Begging for forgiveness. And here you got this guy that's lost his mind. And he's got this... 454 mag that he just got done finishing off the bear and he's got the hammer back and he's got it pointed right at the head of his buddy and uh, i'm like okay am i gonna witness a homicide yeah anyway that's how vile i was just trying to give you a flavor Mm. of of how vile this he's just just a very vile guy but there was that wrestling thing we had Mm. where i could focus on that so everything looked real. Right. You know, there's one thing as an undercover guy, you don't want it to be fake. Right. The relationship has to feel real. Mm-hmm. And that was one of my techniques I used, um, especially with, well, with any any target I I worked, I would. And it was hard sometimes to find something I liked. <laughs> but then other guys were the complete opposite. Other guys felt like a friend uh, for real. Because mm-hmm. they were just easy to be around. Yeah. And I had those guys, too. Yeah, And there were guys, so when I talked about Stockholm Syndrome and, right. and just feeling bad for the bad guy that mm-hmm. needed to be caught, mm-hmm. when I worked those kind of guys, the end of the case was just as hard on me as it was on them as far as, yeah. you know, I felt horrible that they were being caught even though they needed to be caught because right. I knew that betrayal was going to... The kind of people you had Thanksgiving dinner during hot oh. season at their house. I've had several Thanksgiving meals with bad guys, and mm-hmm. uh, some really liked me. And yeah, they treated were, you like family if you were oh, there for Thanksgiving. I, so. Exactly. Yeah. I was family, and, uh, and they were easy to like. Mm-hmm. There's guys that were – they would keep me in stitches, and I wasn't faking laughing. Yeah. You know, uh, funny guys I worked, mm-hmm. but they were bad, and they needed right. to be caught, and they were outlaws, and – there are outlaws that are uh, fun to be around, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> but they need to be held yeah. accountable you know and the, and those cases were really hard on me too, psychologically, you know yeah. working those yeah um, any really funny incidents that happened wow uh, oh, oh, too man. many oh that just well there's that there's the guy screaming at me that but i don 't know how many cases i I actually talked about this in one of the classes today uh where guys have been caught night hunting. And then, so I'm with them, so they've learned some things mm-hmm. and evidence gathering and different things. So whether it's a night hunted moose and and I just remember one guy just working so hard because he he night hunted this moose and there was a a skiff of snow. I actually, did the same thing when he he uh, shot a deer at night when I was with him there and uh, worked so hard to get those shells retrieved. Mm-hmm. Worked so hard. And then he'd give me that smirk, like, see, this is why I'm never gonna get caught again and he'd hold the shell in front of my face like he finally found it and it was a victory and then he'd hand it to me you know? and I and I'd smile and I'd say, Good job and put it in my pocket you know? And uh it was just I I I, I can't even count. There's that ha- that exact same scenario mm-hmm. where they just thought they were above and I use the other scenario, the one guy saying, you know, um, there's been all kinds of funny things that have happened. One one scenario, and I mentioned that one too, uh, you know, the, we're tracking this illegal bear and he's in front of me and mm-hmm. so proud. And I, I would play into people's egos, you know, man, I can't believe you saw that deer. That's just one of the other techniques I'd use. and they had shot a bear, and we were—he was going to get another guy to tag it, but we—we we didn't find it yet, and we're tracking it. We—we we come up to this road, and we're way up in in the North Main woods off the Reality Road there, and and he's like looking around. He's pretty puffed up. He was an illegal guide and doing everything wrong, and I had paid him for a bear hunt, and he looks back at me and he's whispering. He goes, "That's why I've never been caught." Because I'm always one step ahead of the game, Warden. You know, and he's being real sneaky, going through the bushes. And I can remember when we started walking, continue tracking. I just remember looking down. He's like, "Yeah, he's about one step ahead of the game, Warden." You know? <laughs> just, just those little things that don't mean much to anybody, anybody else. else, but, know, they, but they make you chuckle because it. oh, yeah. it's a whole right, different right. so piles of those kinds of things. Yeah,
1: so. in, in the end, when were you in on the when the search warrants happened and things oh, yeah, like that? Oh yeah, we would so. They would see Bill, their friend, to uh, Bill the game warden.
2: Yes, and and uh, while we avoided, we changed things when mm-hmm. we started doing takedowns. We didn't think it was productive if they actually saw you. Sometimes, right? Sometimes our operative, if there was a struggle with acknowledging something took place, but we we moved away from that. I was usually at a command post, mm-hmm. and if we would have interviewers, and and. At that point, it really didn't matter if things were corroborated that way, if, like, they confessed to, yeah, Mm -hmm. I I shot four deer at night with Bill or Mm -hmm. whatever, but I'd have it all laid out. Yeah. So when we chose interviewers to to interview one of the bad guys, I'd be at a command post, and they might call me, and he Mm -hmm. might hear my voice and say, hey, look, Bill is one of us. He's a game warden, like kind of the gig's up. Mm Mm-hmm. And most of the time, they'd either say, "Well, I ain't saying nothing fly," or other times they'd say, "You know, well, I'm really caught." You know, right. but either way, it it really didn't matter because usually we had a such a mound of evidence. Mm-hmm. But yeah, they knew it was me, and they knew sometimes I would communicate, you know, on such and such a date. That's when he. Killed this or that or the other thing, whatever the crimes were, you know, Mm. stole the Jeep, did this, did that, sold the Jeep, (laughs) 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 you know, all those things, you know, whatever the details were of whatever the crime was. Yeah. Well, very interesting. So, and you were like 20 years doing the undercover? Yeah, too long. I would say definitely too long. The problem with undercover work is you get really skilled Mm -hmm. at at between five and 10 years at actually doing it. And then, like, in in the situation with me, I was trying to bow out after around 10 years, Mm -hmm. trying to train newer guys to just do it. But not everybody's comfortable doing it. Not everybody's successful doing it. Right. So you're, you know, you're going through people that might have that ability. And then, and some, it just seems like every time, when I wasn't doing a case, and I knew there were bad guys out there that needed to be caught that way, I was frustrated. And then when I was doing a case, I'm like, you know, I was supposed to get out of this. And here I am doing another one and another one. And, uh, so I was caught in that place, that mm-hmm. catch 22, that, that wanting to get out of it, but also wanting people caught that needed to be caught. And then, you know, I wouldn't want a new guy going into a situation if the group was talking about killing the game warden and they were a really vile group. Well, you don't want to put a guy that hasn't done many. Right. Those kinds of cases, so I'd be like, "All right, I'll do that one because mm-hmm. I don't. We don't want to put pick- because that would weigh on your comf- conscience." Yeah, if because something I was doing happen. it long enough where I had say. You know, we yeah. have these round table discussions of you know who's going to work this case. We'd look at the cases that would be submitted. There's quite a process. We just right. didn't. You know, we weren't on fishing trips working undercover cases. Mm-hmm. They were piles of information that came in a game warden would usually submit it this is what's we think's going on in my area and this mm-hmm. is all the players these are the targets these guys this group is all felons this group is maybe one or two felons in it we know they're hunting we know they're doing this but they know how to avoid regular standard law enforcement or they've been doing a good job at avoiding it and mm-hmm. uh, so anyway it would be a big discussion and then we try to look at the profiles, do backgrounds, who would be the best fit to work that kind of person, different Mm -hmm. personalities, like, you know, the personalities are a big thing for working cases, you know, if you've got that, you know, real hard control freak kind of person, very, uh, you got to be looking at the personality of even your operative, Mm -hmm. of, of Something that's going to fit. Yeah. You're looking for a good fit. Yeah, And uh, and then what would happen, and that's why I dragged on, because the case would be like maybe a little too dangerous. And I'd say, why don't I do this one Mm -hmm. and give one maybe that's not as uh, a lower risk situation. And it's probably hard to move another operative
1: into that position. Yeah. Because... You know you know, you can go in and handle it, and right. to make that transition for somebody else well, is see, tough. Because if something goes wrong, yeah. I, I can't
2: even imagine. Well, uh, that's the thing. So if you're not working a case as the operative, mm-hmm. uh, that's how we did it back then, is you might be the case manager. Well, the right. case manager's job is to make sure the guy's safe somewhat. Mm-hmm. As a, we we changed a lot of policies regarding mm-hmm. risk and safety issues since like, some events that took place. But mm-hmm. – um, yeah, uh, your your former Colonel Joel Wilkinson
1: actually yeah. shared some of his experiences yeah. as an uh, undercover, and some of them not so pleasant.
2: Joel was very good at it. One thing Joel uh, shared, Colonel Wilkinson shared with me one time, is that that's the the psychological stress, like mm-hmm. getting the massive migraine. Right. If like you don't even realize you're under the stress. Mm-hmm. I can remember coming from a case where they're, putting a knife to my throat and really calling me out of being a possible game warden. Right. And thinking I handled it, thinking I got through it. And then I remember on the ride, I I would always ride a certain direction before I turn around and ride to where I really live, Mm. (laughs) you know, and try to get home uh, with a covert vehicle or try to get to a situation or a safe spot or whatever. And I remember riding back from that one case where I was really called out and it got – I got way past all my go-to lines on on trying to relieve the old "Are you a and game warden kind of thing, mm-hmm. undercover, undercover drug agent, or whatever you're getting accused of." That one got real. That's in the book. About it, it got to the point where I was gonna knock the guy out if he came at me with a knife one more time because mm-hmm. it was it was all over the. It was way past the fun stage, you know. Right. We're in a camp out in the middle of the woods and. There's no backup, you don't have a gun on you and, right. and I had to make a decision. Mm-hmm. Anyway, when that when that was re- when I left that contact or those series of days, I felt that enormous stress. I actually got emotional and I'm one of those fools that holds everything in and never cries. You know, mm-hmm. My wife only ever seen me cry like once or twice, I think. Right. Maybe just once, but so I remember getting emotional. That's how draining mm-hmm. that case was and like I'm thinking, what the heck am I doing this still? Yeah. I mean, this is Maine's one big small town. It's only a matter of time before you're really, Mm -hmm. you know, people are related to people in different parts of the state. I mean, I did do things in other states helping out, Mm -hmm. and there was a nexus to Maine. Right. But really, I mean, that's, uh, it was, I was, I was, 20 years is way beyond the years I should have been in it. Mm -hmm. Even though. the problem is you gain so much experience in doing it right so that there, there you are you're stuck you know mm.
1: right? <laughs> and now you're retired yeah you're retired a book. yeah
2: i i i uh about your experiences i was i was kind of pressured into writing a book i mean really uh, it's good yeah i i uh there's, there's a little taboo with an undercover guy writing a book. 100%. So I struggled with that. Mm-hmm. I wasn't going to write one. And then the, the co-writer with me, uh, Darren Worcester, who did an awesome job. Mm. Like I wrote the chapters. I read the chapters. I wrote, and I'm breaking out in a sweat. Mm. Because he had that ability to, to put, put the, the reader, reader there. The reader's in the situation. And yeah. I wrote it. I even know what's going to happen, and mm-hmm. I'm breaking out in a sweat. Yeah. <laughs> you know? So the Darren wisser just did an outstanding job at, mm-hmm. at being able to do that. All right. I had to do was tell him the stories and write them down, and he he made that reader. Well, you know how law enforcement officers are. We we have everything in chronological order. Mm-hmm. So this event, this is this started here and ended here and he had that ability to he kind of would go back and forth in the situation right and, and he just really uh did a good job that's what makes it a good read actually yeah because the reader through the whole book is in it uh-huh the reader is in the case yeah you know? and uh that's what makes it
1: a good read yeah that's great and uh thanks for sharing that so everybody can get uh let's go for a ride you know take a ride with uh Bill Livesey, and uh, for sure, uh, you know, that's good. I think everybody should take a read, especially if a sportsman, a game warden, I think this is going to be a special uh, ride for everybody that takes it, especially if that co-writer puts you there, because that's that's so much, so... Not that I'm going to wait for the audiobook either, so <laughs> yeah. that's generally how I read now. I hate to say it, so uh, I'm looking forward uh, to you reading your book, and we'll, we'll, we'll get that out there. <laughs> but th- thanks, Bill, for sitting down with me uh, and, and talking about your book, talking about yeah. your experiences, talking about your life, because uh, yeah. that, that's, that's opening up and uh, sharing with people. You know, you're just not making a difference probably for game wardens. Maybe you're making a difference for somebody in their lives, too. Yeah I think it's a pretty special thing you're doing Well, thanks Yeah Thanks for having me (laughs) And uh, enjoy retirement Yeah So you deserve it
2: (laughs) I am enjoying it
1: (laughs) Uh, Thanks for joining Warden's Watch Podcast (laughs) Please join me, Game Warden Wayne Saunders and other game wardens on our adventures, protecting wildlife, saving lives, and having fun, all while serving the public and the natural resources of our planet. Listen to the tales and experience of those who work in the outdoors while being entertained with stories about encounters with poachers, wildlife investigation, murder investigation, near-death experiences, search and rescue missions, wildlife interactions from game wardens around the country and around the world. When I retired, I realized I couldn't let go of that legacy, but rather wanted to share the passion, the commitment, and the stories of those men and women that call themselves game wardens.
4: To get 50% off.
1: Wayne Saunders, and this is Warden's
0: Watch. You want to succeed, you want to fish, you want to be one of the greatest. Tune in to West Marine's Life on the Water, presented by Costa Custom Boats, every Saturday night from 7 to 9 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint
4: TV.